Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. Hi, I'm Lizzie, and I don't give a damn about my reputation. Hi, I'm Sam, and I'm not gay. I just have a weird hyperfixation with David Bowie. <laughs> and we are Subtextual. Here at the Subtextual Podcast, we like to discuss films that you love, films that you hate, and point out all the gay subtext that you already knew was there. Yeah, especially with this one. I mean, Jim Jet, are you on. kidding me? Yeah. This film came out in 2010, and, and that was like at the height of me going to the movies almost every weekend. And also Kristen Stewart being like a giant influence on my sexuality. Like this was yeah. right around the time New Moon, which is the second Twilight Saga film is coming out. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to see this film. This one's like a sucker punch for you in like time and space. The Venn diagram is a perfect circle. Yes. But before we jump into talking about Case Do yet again. Damn. <laughs> back already <laughs> on a marathon <laughs> we wanted to say thank you so much to our patrons who follow us and support us on patreon at patreon.com slash if you haven't had a chance to check out our patreon please do just see what's there there's a couple of things you can access and there's so many tiers where you can get all sorts of bonus content merch nudes nudes <laughs> whatever you want really um, at patreon.com slash pod. Otherwise, thank you so much for pressing play. And this film has been a long time coming. I got to tell you that. I love this movie. Do I? Wait. I love this movie. I think I do. I think I was really disappointed seeing it in 2010, basically as a teenager, because the trailer makes it look like really salacious and exciting. And it really is kind of a slow burn and also not a love story at all. The hype around this movie, I remember being really, really high. But watching it now in 2023, I was like, oh, Coppola, Sofia Coppola could have done this. It's very virgin suicides-esque. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very slow. It's definitely portraiture, beautiful imagery, and lots of queerness because it's about the fucking runaways who are mm-hmm. like queer icons. Yes. Especially Joan Jett, who is a huge reason of why we're talking about this film today. Mm-hmm. I always assumed she was a lesbian, but she's yep. never actually come out. Yeah. I think she's got that like Queen Latifah, Tracy Chapman, Rosie O'Donnell thing where we don't really need to say it, right? Right. And even she has said as much, and we'll talk about that later, but Joan Jett has certainly become a queer icon for fucking sure. She's like the leader of women in rock and roll. Like literally the Runaways were the first all-girl rock and roll band in the history of time. And to this day are still one of the only uh, all-women backed rock and roll bands like sure there's been like stars that have fronted like heart and blondie Mm -hmm. but this one was purely always has been all females in all instrumentation and Joan Jett wrote most of the lyrics for the runaways that Um, was my biggest revelation watching this in 2023 I was like Joan Jett is the Pete Wentz of the runaways and if you don't understand that reference I just found out very recently Fall Out Boy has been like my all-time fave band since I was like a teenager But I found recently that Pete Wentz has written and has always written all of the instrumentation as well as the lyrics and handpicked Patrick Stump because Pete Wentz was like, I just can't hold a tune. But I will tell you, like growing up, also being a huge fan of that band, the only band member I could name was Pete Wentz. Like we were obsessed with him. Yeah. So not only was he the hottest, but he was the most talented. Same for Joan Jett. Same for Joan 
jet. She's a Pete Wentz. She totally is. God, I was obsessed and still to this day was obsessed with this woman in high school. I listened to The Runaways all the time. So this film did a lot for me. And, and other reasons we're talking about this film is that not only is Joan Jett an icon, but she's portrayed by Kristen fucking Stewart. So another entry in the Kristen Stewart queer cinematic universe. Mm-hmm. And there's just like fucking straight up gay sex on screen. So I have to pose the question. Everybody's thinking it. Is there a Kristen Stewart movie we can't do? Personal Shopper? I need to revisit Personal Shopper. Personal, we won't start off on a tangent about Personal Shopper. That is one of the funniest movies I have ever seen. Lizzie and I watched it at the French Film Fest (laughs) and it was so preposterous. And I think everybody was very snobbishly trying to appreciate it as an art form. And Lizzie and I just had to break out laughing because... Ghosts? What? She's a personal shopper, literally. That's not like some sort of weird (laughs) metaphor for capitalism. Like, that's her occupation. (laughs) No, we need to revisit that film. Um, But no, if it's got Kristen Stewart in it, most certainly we're allowed to do it. So a little bit about the history of the band before we get into the movie. So the band was formed in 1975 and was only really together for about four years before they disbanded. And ultimately, Sheree Curry stopped doing music altogether. And Joan Jett went on to do Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, which has done so many fucking songs that you hear on the radio all the time. And what was interesting about the band forming in 1975 was I kind of looked into the kinds of female musicians that were really popular at this time. And they were artists such as Linda Ronstadt, The Carpenters, Diana Ross, Joni Mitchell. So we were either looking at disco, which was huge at this time frame. And or I think, folk. Or folk, mm-hmm. or like the singer-songwriter. So what these girls were doing had never been done before. It set a precedent. And it continued setting a precedent and kind of rolling forward into the 90s where the riot girl punk movement attributes a lot to what was going on in the 70s with the Runaways. Mm -hmm. Um, So they literally changed the music industry and they paid a heavy price to do so. Like they did not have an easy road ahead of them. And I think that's one thing that the film portrays really well is just how many roadblocks they had and how young they were trying to do all this shit. Babies. Like actually 15 to 20 years old. Like the oldest member of the band was 20 years old. Now that's one of the things I really appreciate when I rewatched the film is that they did not glamorize any of the process of these people, you know, creating this music and then becoming inexplicably famous, like inexplicable to themselves because they didn't realize how popular they had become. But I think the film does a really good job. And I think, unfortunately, it might have been marketed in a different direction. I mean, it was, I think with if you watch the trailer, it's like, we're going to watch the glamour of these like superstars. And it's just not the case. It's also really sad to like consider that they were Sherry Curry was 15 years old, really being coached to like sexualize herself so heavily mm-hmm. to the public and to a fetishizing male gaze that mm-hmm. ultimately was also calling her a whore mm-hmm. <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. Um, and in concurrent to watching this film, I also was interested in watching the Joan Jett documentary Bad Reputation, which came out in 2018. And there was kind of a through line that's stuck with me from this documentary where Joan Jett is talking about kind of like their first year with the band, how at first when people heard like, oh, you're starting an all-girl rock band, like how cute, how sweet, and how quickly it became, oh, whores, y'all are cunts, Mm. y'all are sluts. Like they were getting 
smashed, just like you see in the film, and ridiculed for what they were doing. They were called dykes and lesbians, and though many of them were lesbians, <laughs> it was a way to negate what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, um, it kind of pinged like this this clip that has stuck with me forever. You probably know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this this moment in history, but Kathleen Hanna, who was the front woman of Bikini Kill in the 90s, this amazing punk rock band, there's a clip of her. She's frontlining at a show and she basically screams into the mic like all girls get to the front of the stage like come to the pit come to the front all guys get back be cool for once in your lives that's the words just be cool for once in your lives for once in your lives Mm -hmm. and I think that this band just incited so much anger in the audiences who are used to seeing like these male performers and I think that's just so interesting to think about, especially because we're coming off of the sexual revolution and the civil rights movements of the 60s. Like, women's lib was top of mind. We were telling gay people, like, it's cool to be gay. Women, like, it's cool to be you. And yet there's all this backlash coming directly at these performers. Yeah, we touched on this when we discussed something similar in Girl Interrupted, where the 60s and the 70s brought this sort of Woodstock idea of just come as you are and peace and love, brother, you know, but in practice, it didn't always go over so smoothly, especially when you're asking for rights as a woman, as a gay person, as a person of color. That wasn't really the like kumbaya that they had in mind. They just wanted to not go and serve in Vietnam. No, exactly. And they were like, you know, Joni Mitchell, girl, like sing your heart out. Mm-hmm. Like she wasn't a threat to them, oh, to the 100%. male ego. And Linda Ronstadt, like they were still like not showing too much skin and being very like wholesome and appropriate and following gender norms. But from right off the bat and what the film establishes really quickly and we'll talk about later is that Joan Jett and Sherry Curry and these women did not give a fuck about gender norms at the time. Mm-hmm. Who they idolized, how they dressed, how they acted was a direct opposition to what they were supposed to be doing. So the film itself is based on Cherie Curry's memoir, Neon Angel. And I didn't have time to read that book, even though, you know, I love doing that. So I tried to find out through other sources, like, how much truth was there to the relationship between Joe Jett and Cherie? Um, just trying to figure out, like, actually, is Joan Jett gay for real? Like, are we just, like, throwing <laughs> assumptions at her? And I did find a couple of quotes that were interesting to me about that. Apparently, in the documentary Bad Reputation, which I got to watch. So in 2018, there was a documentary released about Joan Jett's career called Bad Reputation, which I highly recommend. It's very, very good. But it was declined to screen at an LGBT film festival because Joan Jett wasn't, quote, unquote, out. And when she was asked about that in the documentary, she basically holds up this necklace that she says she's been wearing since the 1970s. It's like two axes, like a labrys, which is like a kind of like throwing axe Mm -hmm. that like an Artemis type goddess would use, (laughs) crossing each other inside the women's symbols. Both of these symbols were adopted by lesbian feminists in the 70s Mm -hmm. as like a symbol for women empowerment. And she also indicates to this tattoo she has on her back of those labrises and similar female symbols. And she basically was like, they don't want the movie there because I don't declare. I don't know what else you want from me. Hmm. So she's been like literally tattooing like I'm a lesbian on my body. But because she hasn't like said the words, she's not. (sighs) That's the thing is like is being out like 
saying it with your words? Is it your actions? Mm -hmm. You know, like how much has she done for women's lib? Like she's like a longtime supporter of PETA for God's sakes. Like let the woman. And they're so annoying. And they're so annoying. That is a lot of loyalty. Yeah. Be loyal to PETA after they're so fucking annoying for so long. Just like accept her for where she at, bro. Don't put a label on Joan Jett. She's not trying to hear it. I'm of two minds about that. I think that, yes, you can say my sexuality is not open for debate or discussion. It's not something I need to declare. I'm just been a gay person. Like, I don't need to say anything about it because it's my personal life. I do believe that. But I think also if you're like submitting a documentary to an LGBTQ fest, you give so much power, especially when you have a platform. Like when you can say it, it means so much to people. So mm-hmm. like... I, I get what she's saying. There's a lot of her career where she couldn't be comfortable with it. But when you can feel comfortable with it, when you're Joan fucking Jet, she's inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it could mean a lot to people if you do say it. Totally. Like Jodie Foster, when she accepted that Academy Award and everyone thought she was going to come out because she kept... I, I think she did it as a fucking prank. Do you guys remember that? <laughs> I do remember that. Where she kept like edging you. She was like, and so you've wanted me to say what you think I'm going to say. <laughs> and what I'm going to say is... You're like, Thank you. You know, and it's like, oh my God, you're gay married. Like, (laughs) what the fuck is going on? You know? Yeah. And also, apparently, Lita Ford, I, who you love, love Lita Ford. Yes. She was the guitarist of the Runaways. Mm -hmm. Apparently, early, early on in like the early days of the band, she quit the band when she found out that almost all the members were gay. She saw Sandy, who was the drummer, messing around. She found out Cherie was messing around with Joan. And basically she was like, I freaked out. I had never seen homosexuals before. Didn't know what to do. So quit the band. But luckily came to my senses. And a few weeks later when they called me back to be like, we need you. She was like, okay, I got this. Can you imagine doing the gayest activity ever with the gayest people in the world and being like, they're homosexuals. These women who don't want to wear dresses and listen to like Elvis Presley. These women that wear men's clothes <laughs> yeah. and want to sing in like a broke down trailer park. Like what? Yeah. That are not appealing to men. The standards of set by men for women's conventional beauty are lesbians. Lita Ford, look at yourself, babes. You know, Lita Ford, she's just an incredible guitarist. Seriously. She is. No, she came to her senses. I mean, the thing is, these children were 16 years old. They're being put in the some sort of limelight, and it's not like the pretty limelight like Britney Spears. It's like getting trash thrown at you on stage mm-hmm. and then getting ripped apart in Japan by, like, Japanese schoolgirls. Like, yeah. this wasn't a pretty version of fame for them. It never was. I mentioned that I, like, really love Lita Ford. I also am obsessed with Sheree Curry. I've been for a long time. Lizzie knows probably what I'm about to say now. Do I? I don't know. What? Uh, when I was in high school, I was very obsessed with Sheree Curry specifically. The Runaways, yes, but more, more specifically Sheree Curry. And I made an email address. I must have been like 13 or something, or 12 probably. I made an email address. I found, because Sheree Curry now um, does chainsaw art, I found her like chainsaw art website. Mm-hmm. I found an email there. I emailed her. I don't, I wish I had the email. Like I need to find my like Yahoo account that I must have made at the time. But it was, I think the general sentiment was just like, I really admire you and relate to you. And this was right before I'd come out. Oh, 
but I didn't say those words in the email because I was terrified to even type them. Yeah. And I remember just saying like, I don't think my parents like understand me. Like, what do I do if they don't like like the person that I am? Because I couldn't say that I was gay because I was just like not ready or prepared to say that. Yeah. And I was thinking I was just sending it into the void. You know how Oprah says like, write a letter to someone and never send it? Yeah. That's what I was, I was doing because I was like, there's no way she's going to open Cherie this. It's Cherie Curry. It's Cherie Curry of the fucking runaways. I thought she was like next to Jesus. And she responded. Oh, you've never told me this story. I've never told you this? Never. Oh, wow. Um, Cherie Curry responded to that email. Oh, I my God. I wish I had it. Wow. That would be such you a gag. To, you need to dig this shit up. I remember making the email in like secret. I probably didn't even use my own name because I was just so scared. I was like super in the closet. Yeah. And she said, I remember it just being like the kindest, most heartwarming sentiment of like, your parents probably just care about your safety. And if they love you, like it sounds like they do, they'll be fine. Holy shit. And she was like, you know, I know I went through a lot of things in my life. It took me a lot of time to get where I am, but it'll all be okay. Oh my gosh, Sheree Curry, like giving you a courage You've been touched by an angel, girl. I remember losing my shit that as like a kid. That means so much to me. It was lovely. You know, she's a really grounded person and, and she went through a lot so quick. Like she got super addicted to drugs, super mm. burnt out, but she came back and made a whole life for herself and seems to be a pretty healthy artist doing chainsaw art yeah. out in California and just giving people like you a little booze when they need it that's so sweet because most of the time when you i mean you think about writing to celebrities or you do and they, you just never you're left on red and that's fine yeah no i i she was probably just doing chainsaw art and my stupid little email pinged in and it was like some fucking 13 year old from far away and she's like let me take a moment to just be nice and it seemed like it wasn't just like a one or two line it was like paragraphs and i think that's just very lovely and Sometimes I like to think, you know, because she's since lived a totally different life, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere where people probably don't even think about the runaways when they interact with her. But when I'm talking to people in stores and stuff, I'm like, you could have been a fucking rock. I don't know, you know, but, you're, yeah. you know. She could have gone right back in. Like, she was the front man, you know, she was the face of the runaways. And Joan Jett only stepped in whenever she stepped out. So mm-hmm. she could have easily gone back in. But I really respect her for realizing that it was tearing her apart, mm-hmm. realizing she was spiraling out and being like, okay, well, a rock star life, not for me. Because she also never chose it. Like, it kind of chose her. Yeah. Because her inception into the band and how the whole band came together, and most of the film actually is pretty accurate to what happened with The Runaways. Like, Kim Fowley was starting to put this group together, found Joan at a, outside of a bar who introduced her to Sandy, and the two of them together saw Cherie in a nightclub and asked her to be their front man. So Cherie's just sitting there looking hot, mm-hmm. looking all David Bowie, mm-hmm. gets chosen, and it ended up ruining her life almost there for a second until she turned it around. And I don't, I don't think I could personally say I would do the same thing. When you're 15, you don't have a lot of options, and everyone in the world is screaming your name and praising you. Like, I don't know. I could, if I could say stop. Right. What, I mean, how do you even say that? It took me, I'm a grown adult woman. It took me like up until a couple years ago to be able to say like, no, I don't want to do this. (laughs) Sorry, boss. That sounds horrible. Yeah. So that's, that's incredibly commendable for a, a child. 
Yeah. And also on the flip side for Joan Jett to have this band crumble out from beneath her feet, this opportunity she never thought she would have, and to still pick herself back up and go and do her own thing. And even like the first album that she did with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, which was the band she joined after the Runaways fell apart, her first album was rejected by 23 different record labels. So instead of being like, oh, fuck, my music sucks, she just made her own fucking record label Mm -hmm. and released it and sold like 10 million copies. So the resiliency of these women and I think like their legacy is amazing. I love how the film portrays them. Again, this film is just like a snapshot of like maybe a couple of months time in the runaways history. But I think how the filmmaker talks about them and their and all the things that they accomplished in that time is really interesting. Um, so I guess talking a little bit about that filmmaker, uh, the film was written and directed by Floria Sigismondi of Italy. She's actually more of a music video director and background. I can see that so clearly in some of these scenes. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot of vibes. They're very quick scenes, super like stylized lighting, stylized clothing. She's very much focused on the look and even how she cast. Kristen Stewart looks just like Joan Jett. And Sandy, the drummer, looks very similar to Sandy. Shri Curry, yes. I think Lita Ford doesn't really. And you think? Oh my God, I thought she nailed it. And also um, Kim Fowley, fucking Michael Shannon. Uh, I don't know if you've seen a photo of Kim Fowley, but they describe him as like a Frankenstein-looking motherfucker. Yeah. They nail it with Michael Shannon. I love Michael Shannon. I always forget his first name. Lizzie was like, oh yeah, The Runaways. And I was like, Molly Shannon. Molly And you were like, no. I wish. Like, I know I like Michael Shannon a bunch. Yeah. but He's like kind of sort of the villain of this movie, but some of his lines are just so fucked up and iconic. Isn't that him in every movie? Yeah. He's the bad guy, but he's so charismatically bad that yeah. you're kind of like, wait, let's follow this guy for a little and bit. And not in like a <laughs> sexy way. And like, a, this guy's just, he's electric. He believes everything he says. He's got the Angelina Jolie and Girl Interrupted. Like, I'm saying the truth. Yeah. Even though it's the most fucked up thing you've heard. <laughs> most ridiculous thing you've ever heard. I know it's the truth. I'm throwing dog shit at teenagers. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Floria Sigismondi, like I said, music video director. She's worked with everyone. Katy Perry, Christina Aguilera, Fiona Apple. She directed the video for Supermassive Black Hole by Muse, a Twilight fan favorite. She's worked with Bowie. And most recently, Bowie. her latest music video was Unholy. By Sam Smith. Wait, I need to know what she did for Bowie. She did at least three videos with David Bowie, including Little Wonder, The Next Day, and The Stars Are Out Tonight. More recent, but before Black Star. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God, full circle for her. Yeah, she works with Dua Lipa. She's... Dua Peep. Like, and all of her videos are very, just like this film, very artsy and evocative Hot. and hot and kind of queer and she does a great job and Joan Jett herself was an executive producer and was present on set and played the guitar parts for this film and Floria insisted that Dakota Fanning and Kristen Stewart perform their own vocals for this movie okay two sides of the coin Mm -hmm. when it's a biopic I don't necessarily like when the subject is the producer 
I don't know why. I feel like, you know, obviously should, they should tell their own story, but I don't know why it almost feels like propaganda sometimes when I watch, you know, when... Like the Elton John biopic. At the Elvis movie that came out with Austin Butler, mm-hmm. like knowing that like Elvis's whole estate was like, this is great. This is perfect. And I'm like, they showed nothing of the fact that Elvis might not have been a great person. I'm yeah. like, before I saw the, walked into the film, I was like, this is going to be like an Elvis postcard, you know, a little bit. Did you feel that way with The Runaways? No, I didn't. I was actually surprised when you said Joan Jett, the executive produced it. She is represented pretty favorably in the film, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't even say she's like the main character. So, Well, with the film being inspired by Cherie Curry's memoir, it kind of takes on more of Cherie's perspective, which I think is an interesting perspective. And of course, within that gigantic story, because so much crazy shit happens to The Runaways. Yeah. Floria had, the director had to kind of focus in. And I think choosing the Joan Jett, Cherie dynamic was so interesting for a lot of different reasons that we'll talk about whenever we get into the film. But Floria, the director, was really insistent that this film not be a biopic and be more of a coming age story, like a snapshot. That's probably why I couldn't even tell. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's probably 20 movies that could be made about the Runaways and their short stint as a band because... Mm -hmm. They really were doing, they were literally doing things that women had never done before. Mm-hmm. And to an extent, not really done since. Like yeah. they were insanely successful. Their music carries over till now. And they were super skilled with their instruments, with their voices. They were just naturally talented and also worked really hard at it. Technically insanely talented. Yeah. Just like randomly super talented. And I don't say randomly in the sense that it's like random, they were talented, but like for them all to have existed in the same neighborhood yeah kismet in a weird way in the same age group like how did that happen yeah so with that i would like to get into the movie people said we were a bad influence open up your filthy vomit but who are they to tell us that what is this it ain't baby shampoo we were about to make rock and roll history we did it mercury record we got signed we got signed Sam, I didn't even ask you, what's your history with this film? Had you seen it before we decided to do it for the pod? Oh, yeah, tons. Like I said, massive Sheree Curry fan. Um, This film came after I had emailed her some nonsense. (laughs) I don't even know how I was able to get the movie because it wasn't in theaters anywhere around me. And if it was, it's certainly rated R, which I could find my way into those. I just don't think it came to like the local regal cinema in fucking suburban texas but i probably got it off some like link on tumblr watched it a ton and i think i felt pretty medium about it at the time i think i have a favorite more favorable view of it now actually same here and also really quick going back to your point like oh i don't think it came to a theater near me there's actually a story behind that and we'll talk about that in the reception oh wow um but this film for me i think it's marketed the trailer is so exciting and yeah. positive and like oh yeah rock and roll so cool but the the story of the movie is actually much more sad and slow and character driven and yeah there are some amazing scenes where they're performing music and those are great but it isn't like the central energy mm-hmm. of the movie so i think the marketing was really misleading and so i remember being disappointed by the film though like really horny after seeing it but my really sad dis- and horny what sad and horny. my favorite combo as a teenager <laughs> but i do remember being disappointed and re-watching it now as an adult and like 
distancing myself from my expectations of it, I was like, this is a great film. Mm -hmm. I, it's gorgeous. And I, I didn't appreciate cinematography and whatever fucking age 18 like I do now. So like technically I think the film is really gorgeous. And what I'm realizing now is what I wanted at the time, maybe I was like so naive, but as a teenager, I wanted it to kind of like rewrite history. Right. I wanted all of these women to have some sort of justice from the film. I, I, I wanted to feel like they owned something. I don't know. And at the end of the film, it's like, it's very harrowing that, you know, they're, they're struggling and you know, working through the industry that they're in. As an adult, I can appreciate that. But I guess as a kid, I was just hoping for something like, oh, they, you know, and then they got their own thing and then they made their own piece. But yeah, like they, they were, were just like, used and right. tossed. And any piece that they have now is their own making. Mm -hmm. And also time, you know, we've, we look back on the runaways and what they did with a much more favorable viewpoint because we know there's more people that came after them that they had paved the way for, that it became more standard, that we could see women excelling in the music industry. And you're right, like over time, their story has shifted a little bit. So let's get into the plot of this film. So right off the bat, they paint our two main characters, super guy. Super guy. So we meet young teenager Cherie Curie, played by Dakota Fanning. She's in the car with her twin sister and her sister's skeezy boyfriend and like <laughs> Cherie like hardly ever looks at men but when she does it's kind of with this like disgust the guy's like making out with her sister and she's just totally grossed out she's like I'm not trying to look cute I'm glad my haircut looks like shit she even says like maybe I don't want a boyfriend not things that 15 year old girls usually say mm -hmm. and then she gives herself a makeover a la David Bowie incredible meanwhile we also meet joan jett played by kristen stewart like i haven't said her name 50 fucking times just <laughs> today did you guess it did you guess who it was played by it was good. um she's shopping for men's thrift store clothes did you say she's personally personally shopping for a men's leather jacket i love that she's like drops like a thousand quarters and she's like give me what he's wearing yeah obsessed and you'll notice she wears that same jacket throughout the film it just keeps getting like more rattier and worn in and like mm -hmm. more safety pins on it and <laughs> shit that was a direct choice by the director um so she runs off in her gender euphoria down the street to show off her jacket to her one of her girlfriends and within the first 10 minutes we get them sharing a kiss and i think it's really interesting that the director chose to center joan's sexuality so heavily in this film mm -hmm. and again i didn't get to read sheree's memoir but i'm like is this just like imagination like yeah what were the events that this was based on yeah but i like how they they like center joan and it's almost like her sexuality is like an afterthought mm -hmm. like the point of the scene is that she's just playing around yeah you know and so she makes out with some girl and there's another scene you know before she talks to kim fowley where she's just like fucking off and playing around again and it just happens to be some guy yeah. you know it seems like they're the director is very intentionally not putting too much pressure or emphasis on the person she's with because it's like she doesn't fucking care yeah exactly that's not the label she cares about the label she does care about is musician because mm -hmm. she will always center her music as her identity and even in real life there was an interview i heard with joan jett where she was like early on in 
super early on, like 1975, when the band was first coming together, I was asked in interviews often, like, oh, is there any sex in the band? Like, what's up with you and the band members? And she said, I had to make a conscious choice to always divert the questions back to the music because I knew, basically, not in these words, but she's saying, if I knew if I said, yeah, sure, me and Cherie have, like, had sex, like, they would have become the lesbian rock band Mm -hmm. and it would have labeled them. And maybe that is why to this day, like, Joan Jett will wear her, like, pro-queer like a necklace and she has like a lesbian tattoo on her back but never actually say i am gay mm-hmm. because she's like i don't want to be fucking labeled yeah why the fuck should i label myself i've literally spent my whole life not trying to be labeled as anything but a fucking musician mm-hmm. and we see that in this character as well and also another thing that i loved about this film was portraying like the shifting gender roles at this time in history I got my hand on a copy of the script, Mm -hmm. which I love, which I did get to peruse. I didn't read the whole thing, but I did read this scene because I was curious just how it was scripted, um, this first, like, lesbian kiss that we see. Because they're, like, huffing. They're, like, high, right? They're huffing glue. Yeah. Okay. I confirmed because I asked Sam while we were watching and I was like, what kind of drug do you do out of, like, a plastic bag? And she was like, glue? I'm like, brother, huffing glue. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I guess that's new to me. But in this moment... Joan is like strumming on her guitar and like kind of cringily singing a Susie Quattro song. Mm-hmm. But what it's scripted is she's singing Lola by the Kinks. Uh, did they so not get the like, rights? I'm assuming they didn't get the rights. But the part she's singing is like, girls will be boys and boys will be girls. It's a mixed up, muddled up, shook up world. So like, I think that would have been a really sweet moment. She's talking about, and this is a through line throughout the whole film, that like gender roles are fucking out the window at this point Mm -hmm. in history and and this theme of like gender expression being totally turned on its head at this point in history is also (laughs) very rudely examined by kim fowley's character later whenever he's coaching the girls in the trailer on how to like access that like orgasmic angry energy he's always trying to imbue them with when he says you dogs better get dirty because all the young fuck boys are out there wearing dresses leaving lipstick on each other's cocks Which is like a lot, a hell of a sentence. But basically what he's saying is like all the men are coming out and they're getting to express themselves and their feminine side. And that's really, I think, talking a lot about the gay boys who are like filling the disco clubs at this time. Mm -hmm. And he's like, and now's the time for y'all to come through and take up the space that, you know, that masculine energy, like y'all can inhabit that as well. But I think that's a really interesting thing that we see Joan herself from the very beginning be super comfortable with. And Cherie, like, never quite come to terms with her role and how she's supposed to portray herself as the front woman. And that's kind of to the point I was saying about, like, the 60s and the 70s and the Woodstocks and the Kumbayas and all that bullshit. It's like, well, you can have freedom and you can be yourself and you can be different if you are, like, a white man. Yeah. You know, so Kim Fowley is saying, like, the guys are out there being feminine and stuff and they've found a way to, like, capitalize on that stuff. So now it's your turn. And I think it was almost optimistically said, but there was never space made for women being masculine. And I don't even think there is now. Yeah. But I think in that moment when everyone's trying new things, he thought this might be the moment for that. And unfortunately, it's not the case. But it seemed like the optimism in that statement, like the boys are over here doing this. You can go over here and be like butch and masculine. Mm. But no matter how well they did it, no one wanted to make the space for that. Yeah, exactly. And then... Like I mentioned, on Cherie's side of the coin, not kind of knowing where she fits in her side 
of her gender expression. She's a young girl being coached to like hypersexualize herself. Mm -hmm. Like there's this full spread of her and basically like a corset and underpants. That really happened in her history. Kim Fowley arranged this photo shoot with her. And whether she consented or not doesn't fucking matter. She's 15, 16, 17 years old at this time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at this point, she's such a sex icon at such a young age. And it kind of like received two different types of reactions from the people around her. Some people in her audience latched onto that image and drew power from it. Mm -hmm. Like you saw all the people in all the audiences in Japan go absolutely nuts for the runaways, especially Cherie. Mm -hmm. That was a real part of the story. It was like Beatlemania for them. And on the flip side of the coin, some women, including the members of the band, were hyper judgmental of her, saying, by sexualizing yourself, you're bringing down the image of the band and negating the music. That makes me so sad because there's not like a third party that's like, you shouldn't legally like... Right. There's no one advocating Protection. for you, like regardless of whether or not you want to do this, you're 15 years old. Like, why are you being allowed to do this? Yeah, exactly. Regardless of whether you want to or not. Yeah, the film becomes much more sad whenever you watch it, like with an adult's eye. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, she's rocking her David Bowie haircut, not giving a fuck. And um, Kim Fowley gets connected to... Joan Jett, just like I mentioned, um, eventually she gets connected to the drummer, Sandy West, bassist portrayed by Aaliyah Shawkat, who I just have to mention because I fucking love Aaliyah Shawkat. She says one line in this movie. What was it? You, I remember because at the end of the film when her name was like going in the credits, I was like, Lizzie, she said one line. And you're like, what was it? And I was like, I'm saying it on the podcast. I'm holding it in because <laughs> it's not it? even especially good. When they go on tour, they land at the first motel. And they realize all five girls are staying in the same suite. And she goes, one room? Two words? <laughs> they underutilized Aaliyah Shawkat. Well, I even have her because she just came off Arrested Development. Like, she wasn't nobody. Oh, my God. You're right. This is after Arrested Development. Mm -hmm. Whatever. She was a part of history. But she could have been, like, a couple more words. Yeah. I mean, the gayest movie ever. I guess she had to sign up for it. <laughs> She's like, well, I'm in. Christmas is in. I'm in. <laughs> And they're also connected to guitarist Lita. Lita Ford. And then we see Joan Jett making eyes at Cherie Curry at a teen nightclub. And that leads to Cherie being asked by Kim Fowley and basically scouted to be a part of the Runaways as their front woman. Uh, that piece of band lore is true. And also the part of the story where Kim Fowley puts them through like this boot camp where he like hires <laughs> young kids to like heckle them and yeah. throw shit at them while they're rehearsing. And I think... You know, as fucked up as that is, he had the foresight to know how audiences were going to react because they did get shit thrown at them. Mm -hmm. They cracked ribs. They drew blood. Like, these women were getting shit thrown at them. It's funny how he, like, he gets the, like, kudos of, wow, he predicted this was going to happen to him. But also, like, wow, he predicted this was going to happen to them. Yeah. And he still went for it. You know, she's 15. No, Kim Fowley, though he is infamous, is definitely a tragically fucked up character. It will shock no one that like sex, um, sexual allegations oh, yeah. came out about him after his death a few years ago. A couple of band members came forward and said he did horrible things to them. And we'll never get to the bottom of that, I guess. They'll never reach like 
a court case or any sort of settlement like that because he's fucking dead. Yeah, no real justice. Um, but he did push the band to come together and coach them as best he could and put them, I guess, in as much fame as he could leverage out of them. So the girls hit the road for their first tour. And one really hilarious scene that I love is Joan Jett's in the bathroom with Sandy, the drummer, and Sandy's in the shower yeah. trying to learn how to masturbate. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, Joan, I don't think it's working. And Joan's like, well, try thinking about Farrah Fawcett. And it does the trick. <laughs> Which is so funny because, like we know, Lita came out later and was like, I was just surrounded by all of these lesbians <laughs> that didn't know how to act. What the fuck? Um, but Cherie and Joan Jett really start to hit it off in the film. And there's lots of, like, gazing and, like, lingering hands. Dakota Fanning wasn't of age, right? So how did they navigate like the legality of her performing these scenes. I mean, Cherie Curry shouldn't have been in the position anyways, but like how did they handle intimate scenes with her character? All I've heard directly on this subject in my research is that there was like an interview question posed but to Kristen and Dakota in an interview where of course the fucking interviewer's like Oh, so what was it like to kiss in this fucking movie? And they're like, they're like, it was great, you know, like, lol, whatever. But um, one thing Kristen did go on to say was like, yeah, I wasn't legally allowed to touch her. Because at the time, Kristen was like 17, 18, I think, and Dakota was 15. Um, so she was like, we had to be really smart about how we filmed that. I couldn't really like, you know, put hands on her. Because in the script, it is written a lot more explicitly. Their sex scene involves like nudity and breasts and is more visualized where in the film it's definitely more hazy and kind of in Nuance, this like suggestive sm- yeah exactly suggestive and it also makes sense tonally they don't actually put any importance of sexual exchanges between any characters even between joan who you know is portrayed by kristen Stewart, who is at, of age at the time you know yeah. they don't linger they don't change perspective they don't like zoom out and show them caressing each other because it's like they're fucking in a bathroom they're high on coke. they're fucking on drugs dude yeah And for me as like a teenager seeing this movie, I think part of me wanted that like love story, wanted that to like mean something and then to have this like intense love affair. And like it, that just wasn't the reality. Mm -hmm. Sheree Curry was interviewed about like present day, what she thought about the sex scene in the film. And she says, well, Joan and I were never in love. We loved each other as friends, but Joan was never touchy feely like that. Uh, but Joan and I had a great time a few times back in the mid-70s. Okay. Everyone was sowing wild oats. We just had fun. It was no big deal. And that's exactly, I think that's very accurately to how the film portrayed it. It yeah. was no big deal. They just like were around each other and had this chemistry. And As you're saying, as a high schooler watching this film, like a little gay girl, I was like, well, it has to be a what of your life. You well, don't want to mail you. Yeah, you, you know? want labels. They want to be official. You know, I'm coming off of Twilight, which is like the most hardlined relationship on planet Earth. Yeah, you know? now I'm like 28. I'm like, yeah, sometimes you just fuck people and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and it's not like this big emotional revelation. Yeah. Yeah, so they finally hit it big after this tour and get signed to a record label and head off to Japan for their first international tour. And, dude, they were huge in Japan. I was asking you because... There was some like outfits that they were wearing that I was like, I've only seen pictures of them in this era in Japan. Like there's no pictures you can find in this like year that they were doing this. Like any American people took pictures. It was like Japanese photos, like Japanese overlays. 
What, like they were that huge? Yes, they were that huge. They, that was like the first time they really saw a paycheck from their work. But also, so they went to Japan in the summer of like 77, I believe. And in August, they were going to cut another studio record. And like in the film, in that same month, Cherie Curry left the band and Joan Jett stepped into the, the vocals for that record. And that was kind of like the last... They did a couple more records after that, but they never hit as hard as what came before. So, like, they kind of peaked and in that Japan tour, and they kind of peaked with the live album that they recorded in Japan. That album ended up going gold. And after that, like, even though they did more work, it without Cherie and I think mm-hmm. without the, like, gusto of, you know, the starting of the band, like, it ended up fizzling out. It just reminds me of how Cheap Tricks, I Want You to Want Me has no studio version. The only version that you can find is the live in Budokan, like the Japan version. Well, because I guess they were just like creating all this merch. And I think like if the Runaways had stayed together and Sheree had stayed in and like all the drug shit hadn't gone down, like they probably would have created another album and had a lot more merch to work off of. But because that was like the peak, like they got so much press from that tour in japan like that's what we have to remember them by in a weird way it's like the inverse of how the music industry works now like your single in the studio has to hit so hard to justify the album and the album justifies the tour right you know and it's exactly opposite yeah well because they weren't they didn't have a way to like release a music video and put themselves in front of people so they just had to like go out there and do it <laughs> yeah. until people were like oh yeah these girls exist. Yeah the uh, the like tour in Japan justified the album. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, things have changed so much now but like basically the movie recreation down to like the ribbons on Cherie's corset and the stage lighting are pretty much replicated from the live videos that you see from that that is such a like mark of a really good filmmaker to recreate is so hard. Like if you've seen Selena, the movie, oh, they've recreated her yeah. last concert to the like lights on the fucking... Like the warmth of the fucking light. The color of the lights on the thing that touches her hair one time. Like they've recreated it perfectly. Like it's so much harder to recreate than it is to just like shoot something. And in this case, like it didn't feel unoriginal. I feel like you, you're just boiling it down and bringing us closer. You know what I mean? You, like the first time you can see it in like not two sixty fucking p <laughs> or something. Yeah, exactly. And no, like see the expressions on their faces and what they're going through out off screen, uh, like in the sidelines as well. Mm-hmm. But like I mentioned, like in real life. The band goes back to the U.S., tries to cut a record. In the midst of the album, Cherie refuses to sing, quits the band, and we kind of get like this moment of, I guess, breakup or like goodbye between her and Joan where Joan's like, wait, like I thought we were a family. Is this fucked up family not enough for you? Mm-hmm. And Cherie's like, no, like I have to go back to my real family. Well, Cherie says like because in this moment her distant father is like on his deathbed and Cherie's saying like my dad's gonna die and Joan is like well your dad was like never there so why do you care and I think given their limited experiences I can see it from both of their perspective like Joan doesn't understand what it's like to lose a father who's especially been distant and Cherie doesn't know what it's like to lose a father like at all you know like none of them know no they're like teenagers just Mm -hmm. following their emotions and 
you know, Cherie leaves the band, tries to integrate back into regular life, has a really hard time because she's super fucked up on drugs, super hooked on drugs, ends up going to rehab. Then the film kind of like tapers to an end that's like basically Joan Jett goes off and continues her music career with the Blackhearts and Cherie just like kind of lives a normal life as a normal person. Um, but we get some like great scenes where Joan is just like, listlessly taking baths <laughs> and just like <laughs> laying really sexily on a couch which is so funny because my tumblr was like plastered Filled. with these images it's it's funny that you're saying now because we watched it and i was like i thought these scenes were going to be important you could have thrown them all in the trash why were they there they were unnecessary like we know she is sad about it <laughs> apparently though i heard this like Fun fact, I guess it's not very fun. It's just a fact. But Joan was so depressed. She was kind of just like really actually just laying around everywhere. And she ended up getting like a heart infection. And they say like she was just heart Heart. sick from like losing this like moment in her life. Oh, that's sweet. Okay, now I feel bad for making fun of the scenes where she's just sad and baths. Sometimes you just got to be sad and take a dirty bath (laughs) and like lay on a mattress. So yeah, that's basically the end of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) wait they have a closure beat yeah they do have a closure beat where Joan Jett is on this radio talk show promoting I'm assuming like you mentioned I love rock and roll because she's wearing that little she's wearing the blazer that she's wearing like in the album cover it's hot pink fucking ugly ass blazer like why the fuck would she wear that I was like I don't know. It's not a, even a creative choice from the director. She literally wore that. Wait, I do have a fun fact that like made me for some reason crack up so much. But <laughs> so a lot of the shit that happens in this film is accurate. But there was like one detail that bugs Joan Jett. Apparently, Joan Jett was irritated with the fact that Kristen Stewart was constantly in leather pants. So in the Blu-ray commentary, she's like, jeans would have been way more accurate because I never wore leather pants. <laughs> Even though there's so many pictures of her from this period wearing leather pants, it's insane. <laughs> so people are like, what are you talking about, Joan? You were always wearing leather pants. <laughs> I don't know why that like just sent me. She's like, I never wore leather pants. And they're just like, exhibit A is through Z of you in leather well, we pants. We didn't pick that out of nowhere. Here are 25 pictures of you wearing leather pants <laughs> on this day in 1977. <laughs> like, what the fuck? It's like we had technology, Joan. You don't have to lie. So anyway, <laughs> Cherie calls into the radio station. And instead of them having like a riveting conversation, Cherie's just like, I just wanted to say hi. No, it's the fucking radio host. He's like, oh, you guys must have so much, so much to talk about. He's like interjecting with the weirdest shit. And he goes, oh, yeah, so I guess you probably want to get to talking, huh? Like he's it's like, like just dead, dead air. <laughs> you, you don't have to talk. Like they know each other. <laughs> it's just wanted to be so a part of the conversation. <laughs> it was a really weird way to end it. Uh, but yeah, they're just like, hope you're doing good. And then they hang up. Uh-huh. I mean, they... S- they weren't amicable for a few years. They kind of like both fell off the face of the earth for each other, but they did eventually reconnect-ish. Lesbians, am I right? <laughs> All right, on to the reception. This film, made with a budget of $10 million, only made $4.6 million in theaters. If they would have just let me watch it, yeah. it would have been a different story. Well, like I mentioned earlier, Sam, there is a story behind the botched distribution of this film. Basically, 
the distributor of this film literally closed its doors to business during the release of it within the first couple of weeks. What? And apparently arguments over how to market the film were part of the reason for the failure of the company. Basically, there's two CEOs bunning heads about this film. This movie? And it resulted in, instead of the film opening at 1,400 theaters, ended up playing closer to 300 opening weekend. Oh, my God. God. So it just didn't have people didn't have the opportunity to see it. And like we watched the trailer, it's very like sensational and sexy and I think a little misleading. So I can see wanting to see it, but then not being able to see it being a factor. And you mentioned it came out after Twilight and before New Moon, right? Yeah. So they're riding off of Kristen Stewart's Twilight fame. And Dakota Fanning is a huge name. Yeah, she was like the number one get of this film, though Kristen Stewart had higher billing than her. But um, so without the backing of a reliable marketer, they weren't able to tap into either a audiences that knew who the Runaways were and loved them, usually kind of older audiences, b Twilight fans who are obsessed with Kristen Stewart, or c me, the perfect (laughs) middle of that Venn diagram. Both of those things. Oh my God, me and you. That's so crazy. We're looking at the same moon. (laughs) Always. We're just, we've never met. We're just states apart being like, wow, I would sure love to see the runaways in theaters. God, but you know what's crazy is I did get to see it. It came to my hometown. (gasps) You saw it in theaters? Hell yeah. I remember exactly where I sat in the theater when I saw it. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. You've just been touched by an angel girl. Girl. No, the, the 260p version I saw online was not great. <laughs> All the Tumblr fucking gifts <laughs> that I had to like piece together the plot to this movie with. And you know how that they cut it up on Vimeo, so it's like, and, like a million and, like, ten flipped. minutes. They, like, and they have flipped. to mirror it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They have to mirror it. Oh, <laughs> uh, whatever. But I I do think it making four point six million in theaters, if it had opened at you know, triple the theaters that no quadruple the theaters it was intended to, it would have been a commercial success. Not because of me, because I'd have to sneak in, but because of other people, probably other people probably with money mm-hmm. would have gone to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, the so. water horses ratings would have gone up that weekend. I would have bought <laughs> five tickets to the water horse and just walk right into the runaways. <laughs> they never <laughs> talk about that. <laughs> how that's how well the water horse did. How <gasps> tickets for oh, R-rated like tickets for the competitors of R-rated movies probably go up when teenagers are interested in seeing the R-rated movie. We could we should do some research. I bet you there's some just statistics to back that up. That's what people have been asking us to do. And statistics. We might do it. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. All right, time to score this bitch. How the subtextual score works is we rate the film on how good is it and how gay is it. Average of the scores and get an overall subtextual score. All right. Samuel, on a scale of 1 to 10, how gay is this movie? 10 gay sex. Heard it here, folks. I can't argue with myself. Um, Lisbert, what say you, gay sex? Yeah, 10. Okay. Gay sex means gay score. <laughs> All right, Sam, on a scale of 1 to 10, how good is this movie? Um, No wrong answers. I will give it a 5. Um, I'm going to give it a 6. Because she's stylish. No, that one scene where they're in the roller skate, what do you call it, skate oh, arena? skating rink and they're playing in the middle. Yeah. Genius. That's worth like two points for me. Yeah. Incredible. All right. That gives us an overall subtextual score of 7.8. Better than Pitch Perfect? Yeah, better than Pitch Perfect because women have sex. 
Hey. On screen. Hey. Hey, but we haven't watched Pitch Perfect 2, so. We'll see. We can't really say. <laughs> Go listen to The Runaways, you filthy animals. They're you're going to do it band. anyways. If you clicked on this, you're going to. You're probably already doing God, it. Their fucking songs get stuck in your head. So easily. And then when you're done with that, go listen to everything Joan Jett did after The Runaways. I'm seeing a couple's costume for us in the future. <gasps> I'm seeing it. But, the but question I'm going to have is, to be Cherie. I mean, that's the question. I own wigs, so I could be Cherie. You could be Cherie. I would love to be Joan Jett. <laughs> oh, my God. But I don't have, like, the cheekbones. Okay, so you're Cherie and I'm Jen. Okay. <laughs> that's fine because I was Ghostface and you were Drew Barrymore. So <laughs> you've got to, you know. It's basically the same wig. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to keep this content ad-free, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. See you next week.